Well, a little time ago, uh, 70-year-old Bill Moyland woke up on a bright sun, sunny morning and because it was such a beautiful day outside, uh, Bill decided to take his wife for a drive to Gosford. Bill lived in Hornsby in the north of Sydney and so he and his wife jumped in the car and headed north on the F3 freeway. Unfortunately, things quite literally took a turn for the worse when Bill took the wrong turn onto the freeway and started driving north to Gosford, OK, but in the southbound lane. Bill couldn't figure out why all these cars were going in the opposite direction. He tried flashing his lights at them, but they wouldn't turn around. He noticed the police madly trying to flag someone down, but he just sailed straight past them. He wasn't speeding. He was using his blinker whenever he changed lanes. He was doing all the right things, so clearly the police were trying to track someone else. This kept up for about 50 kilometres until the police finally stopped Bill by barricading off the entire F3 freeway at the Gosford Interchange. Bill stood and couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. Everyone else was going the wrong way. Police weren't convinced, and so it was that Bill never got to Gosford and he doesn't have a driver's licence anymore. And I think we can all rest a little easier because of that. <laughs> the moral of this real-life story, going the wrong way will always land you in trouble. Even if you're convinced that you're heading in the right general direction, if you are going the wrong way about it, it will end badly. And it doesn't matter how blissfully ignorant you might be along the way. It doesn't matter if you even think you're doing all the right things along the way. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are. If you are going the wrong way, it will end badly. Now, if that's true in terms of driving to Gosford, how much more is it true of trying to reach eternal life? See, can you imagine the tragedy of living your whole life in a certain direction? Can you imagine the tragedy of living your whole life doing things a certain way, aiming for certain goals in your life, having certain ambitions in your life, maybe spending your whole life going along to a church, reading your Bible, doing good things along the way, thinking you're on your way to eternal life in a new creation. And imagine the tragedy of discovering at the end of your life that the new creation is actually barricaded off from you because you've been going the wrong way about it. That would be tragic indeed. The Apostle Paul does not want anyone in the Philippian church to have to go through that. And so in this morning's Bible passage, Paul makes very, very clear to the Philippians which is the right way and which is the wrong way in terms of reaching eternal life especially so given what he's already said to them in the letter so far. I mean, back in chapter 1, Paul urged the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, to contend as one man for the gospel. But in order to do that, you've got to be pretty clear on what the gospel is in the first place, haven't you? And then last week in chapter 2, it was all about the Philippians being shining stars as they hold on to the word of life. But how are they going to do that if they're not clear as to what the word of life is? This week, in this passage, Paul wants to make sure that everyone is on the same page. 
He wants the Philippians to be crystal clear as to what the gospel is that they should be standing firm in. He wants them to be crystal clear as to what this word of life is that they should be holding on to. He wants them to know the right way to eternal life. And so the way this morning's passage works is that he firstly describes a wrong way to eternal life a wrong way that seems to be going around the traps at the time that he wrote this letter and seems to be confusing some people. So having exposed that wrong way that's going around at the time, he then goes on to describe the right way to eternal life. It's a pretty easy logic flow. Wrong way, right way. Here comes the wrong way firstly. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now... Paul seems pretty worked up about some people here, doesn't he? Dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. Sounds like axe murderers, serial killers. And if you read it in the ESV, which does a better job of capturing the original, he doesn't just say, watch out the the once. He says it three times. He actually says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. But you know who he's actually talking about? He's not talking about axe murderers at all. He's actually talking about people who are telling the Christians in Philippi that they need to become Jewish in order to be real Christians. That reference to mutilators of the flesh there in verse 2, that's a reference to these people telling the Philippians that they have to be physically circumcised in order to be a Christian. That's why in the next verse, verse 3, Paul starts talking about circumcision. Now, physical circumcision was, of course, the sign of being a Jew in the Old Testament. And that's what these false teachers were saying, that you have to be a Jew in order to be a fair income Christian. In order to reach eternal life, you've got to be a Jew. And in order to be a Jew, you've got to keep the Jewish laws, and that means being circumcised. Which is sort of a curious thing, really. I mean, probably these people who are saying this sort of stuff, they're probably really quite respectable, clean-living people. These are the sort of moral, upright people that you'd be quite happy to have as your neighbours. Paul refers to them as dogs, mutilators of the flesh, men who do evil, because he correctly sees that they are very, very dangerous people. They're pushing a false gospel. They're effectively standing at the intersection and deliberately directing people into the wrong lane of traffic to eternal life. That's what he goes on to explain in the next verse, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying there, look, don't be fooled by these false teachers. It is we who are the circumcision. In other words, it's, it's we Christians who are the true people of God, not the Jews at all. The people of God are those who glory in Christ Jesus, he says, who put no confidence in the flesh, he says there at the end of verse 3. That phrase, confidence in the flesh, that's Paul's way of saying having confidence in in your own achievements, confidence in things that you do. In other words, Paul is saying that being one of God's people, receiving eternal life, it's not about us doing things. It's not about confidence in the flesh. It's not about being Jewish. It's not about keeping Old Testament laws like circumcision. In fact, he goes on to say that if anyone ought to know this, it's him. He used to be a Jew. He used to be a super Jew. If anyone could climb the ladder to God by doing the right Jewish things in the right Jewish, at the right Jewish times, if anyone could take a shake at that, 
It's the Apostle Paul. Verse 4. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he's, he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And you see what he's doing there? He's running off a list of all the Jewish things he's done. It's the perfect list of having done Jewish things in order to earn your way to eternal life. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, confidence in what they've done, it's, it's poor. Trouble is, he says, it doesn't work. Now, the reason it doesn't work is because no one's perfect enough at keeping rules and regulations. He doesn't explicitly say that here, but in lots of other places in the New Testament he does. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is what he tells the church at Rome. God is perfect. What he requires is perfection. Paul's point is that none of us are perfect at keeping rules and regulations. Even Paul, who did all these things listed out in those verses, even he realises that it wasn't enough to earn eternal life. It's the wrong way to go. It's like trying to drive the Gosford in the wrong lane of traffic. You are just not going to make it. But... Verse 7, but, it's a very big but, it signals that we've had the wrong way to eternal life, but here comes the right way. And he starts to talk a lot about Jesus. Verse 7, but, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is the Old Testament law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, did you hear the right way to eternal life in those verses? Did you hear all the references to Jesus? Verse 7, whatever was to my prophet, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, he mentions knowing Christ and gaining Christ. Verse 9, having a, not having a righteousness of, of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, friends, all this mention of profit and loss and gain and even having faith, having trust in things, it's actually all sort of commerce-type language. My wife Susan used to be an accountant. She loves these verses because it's all commerce-type language. Think of the stock exchange. Think of the stock exchange. If you play the stock exchange, if you invest, if you put your confidence in certain companies in the stock exchange, the fact that you have invested, that is not the critical factor. It is what you have invested in. That's what matters. That's what determines whether you're going to get a gain or a loss. You invest, you trust in a good company, you'll get a profit, you'll get a gain. You invest, you trust in a bad company, you'll hit a loss. It is the same when it comes to being right with God. What Paul is saying here is that when it comes to being put right with God, you can you can invest in two different things. You can put your confidence in two main different things. In verse 9, you can put your trust, you can invest in having a righteousness of your own, and by that he means doing, relying on things that you do yourself. Or you can invest, you can put your faith, your confidence in Jesus and what he's done. It's a very simple choice. 
You can invest in me, Proprietary Limited, or you can invest in Jesus, Proprietary Limited. And and Paul says, invest in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your confidence in him, for that is the right way. No, 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 actually, it is the only way to eternal life. And so that we really feel the force of this, he's actually very vivid and provocative about it when he says there in verse 8 that he actually considers all those things that he's done, all those Jewish achievements, he considers them in verse 8 as nothing but rubbish. Now that word rubbish in verse 8, that's a very polite translation by the NIV. The King James Bible gets closer to the mark. It says, I count them but done. Paul wants us to be in no doubt. If you're here this morning thinking that your efforts will earn you a place in heaven, that coming here to church, that reading your Bible, giving money away to charities, helping out on rosters, dropping in meals to people, all good things, Paul wants you to know that those sorts of achievements are just a pile of crap when it comes to reaching eternal life. And if you're a little surprised and maybe even shocked at that language, that is exactly the response Paul is looking for. He wants us to be offended at the thought that anyone could gain eternal life through their own efforts. It just can't be done. It can only be gained through investing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, trusting in what Jesus has done. Now, in particular, what Jesus has done is die in our place on the cross. That's the big thing we rely on Jesus for. He died on the cross, and when he did, he was taking on himself the punishment of his people. That even though our imperfections mean that we ought to face God's anger, Jesus faced God's anger in our place so that we could be forgiven and restored. And so righteousness is granted to us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, not because of anything we do. And we need to keep hearing this. Because this is touching down on one of the most misunderstood things about Christianity. You go down the street and you talk to Joe Average and they'll pretty well tell you that Christianity is about doing the right thing, keeping the Ten Commandments, going to church. It's not. In one sense, this passage is about a particular issue at a particular time. It's about the Philippian church being pressured into becoming Jewish in order to become Christian. To the best of my knowledge, none of us here are Philippians. And I'd be surprised if any of us are being pressured to become Jews. And yet it's tapping down into a timeless truth. You do not earn your way to eternal life by doing things, whether it's being a Jew or coming to church or keeping the Ten Commandments, whatever it is. Righteousness, being right with God, is not something we achieve by doing things. It's graciously given to us when we trust in what Jesus has done, which is an extraordinarily liberating thing. I mean, think about it. There is no set lifestyle that we have to have in order to earn eternal life. You don't have to be a Jew. 
You don't have to be white Anglo-Saxon. You don't have to be middle class. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have dress sense. You don't have to play a musical instrument. You don't need to send your kids to the Christian school. You could be an extrovert. You could be an introvert. You can own a big fancy house. You can rent a very modest home. You can drive a European sports car. You can have a second-hand Toyota. You can play sport and shop on a Sunday. You can eat whatever you want. You can choose to smoke if you want. You can dance. You can drink alcohol. You can have tattoos. None of that matters when it comes to being put right with God. Breathe in the freedom of that. Which is exactly why the Apostle Paul starts today's passage the way he did. Verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. See those opening four words? Rejoice in the Lord. Now, as Christians, that that can be a bit of a glib throwaway line that we just say without thinking much about it. But here in its context, do you see why it starts today's passage? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, celebrate in Jesus and what he has done, not things you have to do. Take delight in Jesus' achievements, not your own. Talk about Jesus. Take satisfaction in Jesus. Take pleasure in his accomplishments. Because trusting in what Jesus has done, that's the right way to eternal life. And look, if you've been around DPC for any length of time, you would have heard this before. We must never stop hearing it. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself says there in verse 1, he's already said all this stuff about Jesus to the Philippians, but he writes it again and he says there in verse 1, it's no trouble for him to write it again. He'll gladly keep telling them the same thing over and over and over and over again because it is so fundamental to what being a Christian is. Christianity is all about what Jesus has done for us not what we have to do ourselves. And the Philippians need to keep hearing it, Paul says, verse 1, as a safeguard. Because isn't it the case that it is so easy to just slip back into thinking that somehow our standing with God is performance-related? It's very easy to just slip back into thinking that it's, it's based on my achievements. And it's almost as if the longer you're a Christian... The, the bigger that danger becomes. Because the longer you're a Christian, the longer you follow Jesus, chances are the more good routines you pick up in your life as God's spirit works away in us. And it's easy to just, I don't know, get sometimes a little smug, a little judgmental, and we start to measure how spiritual someone else is purely based on how similar they are to our lifestyle. I go to a growth group every week. Not so sure about everyone else here. I read my Bible every day. I'm not so sure about everyone else here. I make it a real priority to get to church. I'm going without things for the gospel. I'm helping out with the kids club. I've already signed up for the course of your life. I'd never let my children do that. I'd never be caught doing that. 
Friends, pride can very easily just sneak into our lives. And a lot of the things that we do are good and helpful, but it can insidiously work our way into our lives and we start to think again that our achievements count for our rightness with God. They don't. The things we do, in the words of Paul, are all loss. When it comes to being put right with God, they're just rubbish. Because righteousness with God does not come from ourselves. It comes from trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. So rejoice in the Lord. Focus on him. Celebrate him. And look, I know you've heard it before, but it's no trouble for me to tell you again. It's actually a safeguard. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful mercy and kindness to us. Thank you for the great freedom and liberty that it breathes into our lives, that we have been saved, not from a righteousness that has to come from ourselves, but a righteousness that comes from you when we trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, help us to never move away from this incredibly central, exciting truth of your gospel. Help us to rejoice in your Son. Amen.